Welcome to Fellowship Podcast. We're so excited you tuned in. For more information about who we are, check out our website at fbclife.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, As Carla said, my name is Clayton. I'm the student pastor and co-director of Family Ministry. And I assure you, my long title has nothing to do with importance. Uh, I love working alongside Carla in Family Ministry. Uh, She is brilliant. She's kind. She's capable. She's talented. She's all of those things. And I joke with her all the time because she's so good at those things. I joke with her that in terms of Family Ministry, she is the CEO and I am the unpaid intern. Just kind of, you should just kind of tell me what to do, and we're, we're going to go with that plan, because that seems to work pretty good, okay? Well, hey, because today is a uh, family ministry day, we're going to take one Sunday and step out of our Malachi series, um, Hope in the Dark, and it will be a standalone uh, series, or standalone sermon just for today. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Don't worry, I'm not going to get all end of the world weird on you. All, you know, it's kind of lending itself to that in 2020, but I am not going to get all weird on you, okay? Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 is where we're going to be for this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. I pray that you would move on our hearts. Lord, that you would move on our hearts and what it means, um, to walk in relationship with you, to walk with you hand in hand. Jesus, I pray that you would um, think with my mind and my words would be your words. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. Most people don't know about a guy by the name of Samuel Pierpont Langley. A brilliant man in the early 20th in the early 20th century. He was an astronomer, a physicist, an inventor, extremely smart man. And in the early 20th century, he, like so many others, were trying their hand to invent this flying machine, what we now know as airplanes. They were trying their hand at this flying machine, and Samuel had everything that one would need for success. He had everything that you would need to, to, invent this, uh, to invent this thing. He had an education, an extremely good one. He had the smartest minds uh, of that day on this particular project. And in the early, and in 1900, 1901, he was given $50,000 to complete this project. I mean, that, in, in that time, that is just an astronomical amount of money. I mean, you could, money was no issue. Money was no problem. Mind was no problem. The New York Times followed him everywhere with this project. And the populace, all of the people were behind Samuel on, because he had the recipe for success, to invent this flying machine. Well, a few hundred miles away in Dayton, Ohio, there were two brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright. They had no money. <laughs> they were broke. They actually paid for their invention from the proceeds from their bicycle shop. And not one single person on the Wright Brothers team had a college education. The New York Times followed them absolutely nowhere. And with each attempted flight, true story, they actually brought in five sets of parts of everything because that's how often they crashed. I'd imagine some hospital bills would be racked up as well, but I don't know. But they brought in five sets of parts because that's how often they crashed. See, these brothers were driven by a belief that if we could invent this thing, 
this flying machine, it could literally change the course of the whole entire world. So then on December 17th, 1903, the Wright brothers take flight. And other than the team that they had there with them, no one actually knew about it. People found out several days later, which is just hard for us to believe in the world that we live in of social media, where everything is um, an instant thing that people found out several days later. Uh, Samuel, on the other hand, he had a different pursuit. He was in pursuit of results, not a belief system. He wanted acceptance, he wanted fame, and he wanted some money. Uh, To show, to further prove that, when he found out that the Wright brothers were the first ones to take flight, he quit. He just quit. And now what he could have done, he could have invested uh, his team, he could have invested his money, um, all of those things, and to help improve on the Wright brothers' invention. But he didn't. He decided to quit. You could say that Samuel was lukewarm in his pursuits. He was lukewarm, and the Wright brothers had a belief in something greater. See, the Wright brothers, they had a why. Samuel had a what. Because people do not buy into what you do. They buy into why you do it. They don't buy into what you do. They buy into why you do it. So this morning in Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at a church um, in the city of Laodicea. They had a what and no why. Samuel, like this church, was lukewarm in their faith. And so today we're going to talk about being spiritually lukewarm and how we fight being spiritually lukewarm is walking in relationship with Jesus. That's my only point today is how we fight that is by walking hand in hand with Jesus because the Christian life is far more about a who than a do. The Christian life is far more about a who than a do. So before we really dive into Revelation 3, we need just a little bit of context on where we, at, where we are in our Bible. Uh, the Apostle John, uh, the, the disciple who wrote the Gospel of John and the Epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he wrote the book of Revelation in, um, in about 90 AD, and how he wrote it was interesting. Um, he was on land, and they tried to kill him. The Roman government tried to kill him. Well, they had a failed attempt at killing John, and the reason they tried to kill him is because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. And so they say, okay, the only way to get this guy to stop talking is to kill him. That didn't work, so they literally exiled him to the island of Patmos where there was no one. He couldn't talk to anyone about Jesus. Now, today you can go there. It's actually quite populated today, but then it was not. So he was on the island of Patmos having a Bible study, reading his Bible, and then Jesus literally shows up. I mean, I don't know how your Bible studies go. Mine have never been that good. I have never been reading my Bible and then stop and pray and go, Jesus. And then I hear, yeah, buddy. That, that has never happened to me. I don't know what your Bible studies are like, but this was a great one that John had. Okay, he literally shows up. And then he receives revelation from the Lord. And the first three chapters are seven letters to seven churches, one of them being Laodicea. And this is typically the formula that he had, that John had for the churches. There was a commendation. Hey, this is what you're doing well. This is an attaboy, an girl. okay? This is a good job. There was a rebuke. This is where you're sinning. This is where it's not going well. And there was a challenge to that rebuke, and there was a promise on the other side of that challenge. Well, the interesting thing about the letter at Laodicea 
is there is no commendation. There's no add a boy. There's no add a girl. Jesus goes straight into a rebuke. Well, then I have to ask the question, okay, then what was Laodicea like? What were they like? Well, it was one of three major cities in what is called the Lycus Valley. There was Herapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae, which is where the book of Colossians is written to. Laodicea was called the great city of the valley, and here are some three reasons why. First one, it had great people. There was great communicators that came out of there. There was three Olympic medalists that came out of one town, which is extremely impressive. Uh, The Roman government actually sent their soldiers to Laodicea to train. It was a training ground for the Roman government. Another reason is that it had great wealth. It was a business hub. There was lots of business, and people were very wealthy in this city. Uh, There was this black wool that they had that was very rare. It was a very rare wool, and they made it abundant. Uh, The third reason is that there was great medicine. It was a medical hub. There was this type of powder, uh, a Phrygian powder that they would use to put on eyes to help cure eyesight. And we're going to see in verse 18, Jesus is actually making fun of it. He's being sarcastic with it. We'll get to that. So now that we have a little bit of background on where, uh, what this was about, where Laodicea is and what they're about, let's dive in to verse 14 through 16. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus says, I know your works. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is intense. Okay, we have to understand that Jesus here is using a geographical metaphor. Okay, here's how Herapolis was known for their hot springs. Okay, hot water is good, right? Hot water is good. We use hot water to soothe our aches and pains. Um, You and I, we use hot water for tea or bean water. I mean, coffee, delicious cup of bean water. We use hot water for all of those things. Hot water is good. Colossae, they were known for their cold springs, and we enjoy cold water. On a hot summer day, we like a, uh, a nice cold glass of water. No one on a hot summer day goes, you know what I could really use? Lukewarm water. Can someone get me a room temperature water so I can really cool down? Maybe unless you have sensitive teeth, but then maybe I can't help you with this sermon. If you have sensitive teeth, maybe, I don't know. But cold water is good. We enjoy a nice cool swimming pool on a hot summer day. It refreshes us. Okay, well, what about Laodicea and their water? Well, Laodicea had a massive water problem, and what they had to do is they had to build these aqueducts that would ship water from several miles away. The problem is, by the time the water got to the city, it was lukewarm, and it was not uncommon in cities in this day and age for there to be a city center of water. So this is what non-locals would do. Um, Out-of-towners would walk into Laodicea, they would see where the city water is, uh, they would scoop it up, they would drink it, and immediately... spit it out of their mouth. I thought about having actual water in my mouth and like going, you know, WWF, uh, Triple H and just spitting it everywhere, but I chose not to because of COVID reasons. But anyway, so they would scoop it up and they would spit it out of their mouth because the water was lukewarm. Now we know now 
that, listen, harmful bacteria thrive in lukewarm environments. Harmful bacteria, it thrives in lukewarm environments. So cold is good, hot is good, lukewarm will make you sick. Jesus is using a geographical metaphor to explain a spiritual truth for the church at Laodicea. Jesus is telling the church, hey, I see your what. You have good works. I see your what. And you don't have a why. Jesus sees their works, and it's, their works are to give themselves glory and not to give God glory. Now, I've asked myself this question uh, for about a week and a half now, so, and I'm tired of being convicted. How about you? I get to ask you now, okay? How are you, how, how's it going with you? See, is the motivation to be a good person and to self-reflect a good reputation, or is it to point people back to Jesus? Because Jesus just said that the lukewarmness of the church at Laodicea makes him spit it out of his mouth. Now, I know what you may be thinking. That's pretty harsh coming from Jesus. And I'm t- I, I didn't write the mail. I just deliver it. Maybe you should take that up with Jesus if there's a real issue. I've been doing it. It's a good exercise for everyone. So as I'm reading this, I have to ask the question of myself, uh, how, did they get to, how did the church get to this point? How did the church get to the point where Jesus had this strong of a reaction? Well, we'll see in 17 that part of their lukewarmness came from their material wealth. Read with me in verse 17. Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing, this is Jesus' words, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Ooh, Jesus is just leaning in here, huh? Okay, so for all of their material wealth, all of their material wealth, Jesus is telling them that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they're pitiful, uh, poor, blind, and naked. He's telling them that's what you guys are like spiritually to the church at Laodicea. They even said, I need nothing. I don't really need anything. And this, uh, and this pride stemmed from their self-sufficiency. An example of this is in A.D. 60, there was an earthquake that leveled the city. The whole region experienced this devastating earthquake, but in particular, Laodicea, the city was absolutely crushed. Um, The Roman government stepped in and said, hey, I would love to help rebuild your city. Here's some money. The city leaders of, of Laodicea put up their hand and said, I don't think so. We have our own money. We don't need your help. So then uh, once the city was rebuilt, there was a big ceremony, and there was a coin, a ceremonial coin, and on that ceremonial coin was stamped, we did it ourselves. We did it ourselves. See, this pride stems from their comfort. And you and I, we can easily find ourselves right here. We're not Jesus in this passage, right? You and I, on, a, uh, on an individual level, we are the church at Laodicea. Sometimes we can get comfortable, and then all of a sudden coming to church isn't a time to be with God and worship God and be with God's people. It becomes far more of an inconvenience, and it's just easier not to. Now we have a what without a why. 
in certain seasons of life, things may be going well. Uh, probably not 2020, but in, but in another year, things were probably pretty awesome. Um, and then all of a sudden, because things are going well, we will skip out on church uh, um, for most of the time. And then we continue to miss life group most of the time because we, we may not articulate it like this, but we'll say, I don't really need anything. I need nothing right now. And now all of a sudden we have a what without a why. Now, this is a family service, so I'm going to step out of the text just briefly and talk about parenting and discipleship and how lukewarmness can affect all of that. Uh, parents, I want to encourage you, lean into some spiritual conversations with your kids. Lean in. Lean in. Does I, it may be more awkward when they're in high school and middle school if you haven't done it when they were little. So, you should, still, you should still do it. Well, I'll be bad at it, you might say. Be really bad at it at first. Everyone is bad at all of the things when they first start. Like, no one is born running like Usain Bolt. There's lots of things where you're going to fall a lot, and grandparents in particular. I love grandparents because they have a unique opportunity to speak into their grandkids when it comes to the things of the Lord, where parents have to be a little bit more tactful, right, because parents are the one enacting discipline. We, we live with our, we live with our kids, and so grandparents can just show up and just say exactly what they think, and no one ain't going to say nothing to grandma, okay? No one is going to backtalk grandma. I've told you all a story. When my grandma was alive, she was about 90 pounds soaking wet. I backtalked my grandma. I was in sixth grade. I was standing in the kitchen. I know exactly where I was. Girlfriend, right hand, boom, just slapped me across the face, okay? I mean, leveled me, all right? Now, don't judge my grandma. She with Jesus. She don't care what you think, okay? She, she's with Jesus now. She's with Jesus. Uh, so they don't, I mean, grandparents can have a unique opportunity to step in. You may be retired, but you're not done. You may be retired, but you're not done. So parents, come on, parents, you are the primary disciple makers in your home. It's you. Us as parents, we are the primary disciple makers in the home. And you and I as parents, we are going to disciple our kids either intentionally or unintentionally. It will be on purpose for a purpose or it will be by accident. Either way, we are going to disciple the people that we are around. We're going to. Um, here's some unintentional ways that we may do this. So, for example, if I can consistently over and over again get up at 3 a.m. to go deer hunting, and then I am consistently over and over again skip church or am 15 minutes late for church all the time, I am showing my kids exactly what is most important. Now, to be really clear, I am pro-deer hunting, okay? This is not a knock on any sort of deer, okay? This is not a knock on being late for church. It happens. I get it. And you guys know that that's not what I'm saying, but we're in an age of social media. I feel like I have to clarify, right? If this is a continual pattern of, uh, of your spiritual journey, that's what we show our kids exactly what's most important. Another example is when I don't apologize to my kid when I am wrong, when I don't apologize, I am teaching them that admitting failure is weakness and it's not strength. Okay? Um, if, if parents, listen, if we do not express love, if we do not express love after our kids have blown it, they've sinned grievously, okay? And you've disciplined them appropriately, okay? And they need to know 
you are still loved. This is your consequence, and I love you. Okay? If, if that is not an experience, then what was going to happen is they're going to view their heavenly father the exact same way. Of when I really mess up, it's not dad that I go to, it's dad that I run from. And that's not how Christianity operates. Christianity is I messed up, I go to dad. Not I messed up, I need to hide from dad. Okay? If I focus all of my energy on my kids' accomplishments, uh, their grades, and even disproportionately highlight their failures rather than their spiritual development, what I am doing is I am teaching my kids that what you do is far more important than who you become. And now all of a sudden they're going to go off to college and they're going to hear a professor with more degrees than Fahrenheit give them 47 reasons why the Bible is no good, and all of a sudden it's going to make perfect sense. Because that's exactly what they were taught. Now, what parent in here has not been in that camp? I mean, every single one of us have been wildly inconsistent in our parenting. And this should help us and draw us toward grace, right? Because there's no perfect parent. I've told you, I've had conversations with my kid that, hey, there's a better dad out there and his name is Jesus, He's perfect. The other day, I was in the car, and Gideon goes, hey, do you know who a better dad is? We weren't even having a conversation. I was like, who? He goes, Jesus. And I was like, well, you're not wrong, dude. So we point them to there because he's a better father. He's a better parent than we are. And it's tempting for all of us because, you know, when I hear uh, my kids' teachers talk about how they obey and how kind they are, I'm like, they don't do any of that at home, but that's awesome. Oh, yeah. What's your secret? Tell me. What are you doing to them that gets them to obey? I don't know. I'm still figuring this out. And it's easy for me to, uh, to try to overemphasize that, but I have to check myself. Why? Long term, no one cares about the A that they got on the test when they were 15 when they're 30. But I will deeply care if they're walking with Jesus when they're 30. I will deeply care. So parents, listen, hey, online too, if you have a face, look at me for a second, okay? You can do this. You can do this. Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you to fulfill the call of discipleship for your family, okay? You can do this, okay? And you fight against being lukewarm by walking with Jesus because the Christian life is about a who before a do. So I can stand up here and give you, here's 12 parenting tips for you to be an awesome parent. What I really want you to do instead of that is, hey, walk with Jesus first. Walk with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This includes parenting and it is so hard, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have laid my head on my pillow and looked over at my bride and thought, what was that? Surely there was a thousand different ways that that could have gone, and it went the worst one. It went the worst one. And I remind myself of grace. Because I want you to, parents, listen, I want you to give yourself the same grace that Jesus gives you. Because he gives you more grace than you have parenting failures. 
He gives you more grace than you have sin. That's how good our God is. Because in good days and bad, we point our families to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who loves us on our good days and our bad days. And now, all of a sudden, we have a why that compels our what. Okay, and this is how we fight being lukewarm. Back into the text for a second, okay? We're going to go jump back into the text. The church at Laodicea wasn't fighting their lukewarmness. In verse 17, they were lukewarm because they were pretty self-sufficient with all of their wealth. And in verse 18, they're going to turn to their morality and deeds to think that they're good enough, that it's all sufficient. Read with me in verse 18. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And the salve, this is the sarcasm, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Jesus, what he's doing is using uh, sarcasm to ask the impossible of the church at Laodicea. Okay, he is asking them to use your resources, use your good deeds. You need to do that to buy from him the white garments of righteousness. Go ahead. Use all that you can to, to buy from him righteousness. Uh, what I want you to, Jesus is asking them, hey, use that, uh, that powder that you use to cure eyesight physically. I want you to use that same powder to cure your eyesight spiritually speaking. Go ahead. I want you to try. Jesus is being quite sarcastic here because righteousness and spiritual sight are only a gift of grace, okay? Jesus is telling the church at Laodicea, hey, listen, you can't buy grace. Not with the good works, not with the resources that you have, you can't do it. We get this way sometimes, don't we? I find myself just like at the church at Laodicea where... um, think I'm doing good and it hasn't gone well and we'll go hey God look what I've done for you what's going on you allowed this I mean I'm a good person so this was me not that long ago okay not that long ago I was having these massive wrestlings with Jesus and per usual I lost okay and so to make a medium length story short uh, what the root issue of my frustration with Jesus was that I thought because I was a good person who was doing good things Jesus should reward me the way that I think that he should reward me that is called being lukewarm It's an incorrect view of Jesus. And I needed to be reminded that the the Christian faith, Christianity, is about a who before a do. I was looking to my good works and being a good person for comfort rather than Jesus. Instead of worshiping God for who he is, I was using my good deeds as like this bargaining chip to get things from God as if I had anything to bargain with. And I was very frustrated until I had a proper alignment of God, or should I say, until Jesus pursued me even further. Because if you and I find ourselves being lukewarm, the good news is is that Jesus does not just leave us there. He pursues us. Look what I mean in verses 19 through 22. 
Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So listen, Jesus here is standing at the door and knocking, not at the hearts of those who don't know God or who those who are atheists or, or not Christians, he is standing at the door knocking of the church. They're having church without Jesus. And the biggest problem with the church at Laodicea is they were lukewarm and they were cool with it. They were loving it. They loved being lukewarm. They're saying that it's better off just to simply go to church with their comfort and stuff and their good deeds rather than actually walk in relationship with Jesus. They were just cool with it. So here's, some, here's five indications where uh, you may be lukewarm. Lukewarm people play it safe. Uh, lukewarm people, they'll structure their lives in such a way to where they don't actually have to uh, trust God. It's, it's uh, I'm not going to give away any food. I'm going to hoard everything for, for a rainy day. 2020 has been tough, and if it's taught me anything, it's to, we need to save things for a rainy day. Okay, so I can't give now, so I'm going to keep it all back here just in case. I'm not going to leave any room for, for me to trust Jesus. Second one is lukewarm people do the bare minimum. Lukewarm people, they'll ask questions like, how physical is too physical? Um, how much do I have to do instead of how much do I get to do? Uh, I, guess we, I guess we should and probably, uh, I guess we have to go to church because it's just the right thing to do. Next one is lukewarm people rarely, if ever, share their faith. That the, um, uh, I'm not going to engage that person in a spiritual conversation because it's just way too awkward. Uh, the potential awkwardness outweighs any sort of spiritual conversation. So I'm just going to pull back and keep it superficial and keep it safe. Lukewarm people give Jesus a part, not the whole and this is a process for, uh, as a Christian, for our whole lives, right? Uh, Jesus, you can have over here. Just please don't tell me what to do with my money. I pretty much have it figured out. Uh, Jesus, you can take COVID. I need you to take COVID. Just get me back to normal. That's what I really want is just to get back to normal. You can have that, but I want my normalcy. Last one is lukewarm people uh, rarely think about the next life. Rarely think about the next life. There's no um, eternal impact from this person to next. It's about the here and now, accumulate here, have fun now. I want to do what, what is good now. I'm going to think about that person and their eternal impact, that they're made in the image and likeness of God, and even if they don't know Jesus, that's fine. You can keep it, I'll keep it to myself. Okay, now, who in the world can look at this list and go, that's not me, right? Like, I... I'm sure all of us have been guilty of one or more, if not all, maybe all at the exact same time, okay? This has been every single one of us. And how we fight this is by being in relationship with Jesus. And here's the good news. If you and I, if we find ourselves being lukewarm right now, Jesus is the initiator, okay? This is the good news. Jesus is the one that pursues you. Um, in verse 20, 
I'll close with this. In verse 20, it says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Okay? Uh, this is important. Um, this is because it's family service. I thought it would be cool to have an illustration. Okay? So, um, in first century, what, what was very common is that dinner together was a statement of doing life together. Okay, it was to do life together. It was a statement of intimacy. Uh, it was to get to know you, to walk alongside of you. And in, and in Jewish culture, in particular, this is interesting. What they do if they had you over for dinner and they wanted you to leave, this is what they would do. The host would have a, a their beverage. They would come up to your table and they would do this. They would just put a little bit in there, barely fill it up. That was a sign of, hey, it's been fun, it's been real, but it ain't been real fun. Time to go home, okay? Now, parents, this is not a discipleship technique of you're tired of your kids at dinner, and you're like, okay, time to go home. All right, y'all go to bed now. It's 5.30, super don't care. I am just trying to explain context. You take it with what you will, okay? So, but in this culture, if they wanted you to stay because the food tasted better because of of you being there. Have you ever been in one of those conversations where it was, uh, the drink was better, the food was richer, and everything was just a little bit better because they were there? This is what the hostess would do. They'd come up, and they would fill your glass to the top. And this was a statement saying, stay. I'm enjoying this conversation. Don't go anywhere. Stay here. I want to continue to do life with you. Jesus comes along, and he, fills, he overflows your cup on purpose for a purpose because he wants to have a relationship with you. Even if we find ourselves lukewarm, Jesus is the initiator. He pursues you. Will you respond to it? Let's pray. Father God, Thank you for being the ultimate pursuer. Jesus, you ultimately pursued us by uh, stepping down out of heaven, living the perfect life that we should have lived, dying the death on the cross that we should have died. You were buried into the ground and you rose from the grave, leaving our sins in the ground. Jesus, you conquered our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and you gave us life by giving us the Holy Spirit. Jesus, you pursued us first. Lord, if we find ourselves, if anyone in here finds themselves in the position of Laodicea, Jesus, pursue our hearts to know that there's hope, that you are not done. You're not done. You're not done with us because you loved us first. It is not over. Jesus, thank you for, for pursuing us. Lord, I pray that um, during these next songs that we would respond to you, that we would repent of sin, that we would believe in you, that we would place our faith and trust in you by confessing um, the lukewarmness um, th that is in our hearts that we have been doing, Lord, that we would pursue a relationship with you and walk alongside of you. Jesus, thank you for doing that to us first. Lord, we love you, and it's in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about fellowship or how to get connected, visit our website at fbclife.org and follow us on social media, 417 Fellowship.